The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a bonus episode of What Could Go Right. I'm Emma Varvalukas, Executive Director of the Progress Network. This episode was first released in January of 2021. So there are some references to the pandemic that no longer apply, but a lot of it still does. We hope that you find it educational. So I'm here today with one of our members, Charles Kenny. Charles, welcome. Thanks very much. Welcome to you. Good to see you. You too. So uh, Charles was an economist at the World Bank for 15 years, and now he's a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. It's a think tank out of DC. Um, And he researches and advocates for policies that are good for industrialized and developing countries both. Uh, Charles, is there like a 10 second description of what kind of research you do? (laughs) No, there's no problem. One of the joys of working at the Center for Global Development is I get to research on a lot of different things uh, from technology development through trade and migration uh, and international investment. Wonderful. And what we're going to talk to him about today is actually infectious disease um, and his new book that's coming out soon, or it will be out actually by the time this this interview comes out. Uh, it's coming out in mid-January. It's called The Plague Cycle, uh, The Unending War Between Humanity and Infectious Disease. Um, and if you're hearing that title and thinking like, I've had enough infectious disease in my life <laughs> um, this year in 2020 and now moving into 2021, Uh, I should say, first of all, the book is very educational. It sets a lot of uh, current events in sort of the broader context of history. So it's educational on that front. And also, I should say that Charles sort of sets the tone from, I think, page one or page two, that it's not, you know, just a history, just the facts, ma'am, but uh, he purposely sets it as a story of progress. Um, So it is, in some ways, an uplifting read. Uh, So I think that uh, it's a good thing to add to our... um, reading list moving into 2021 as we continue to deal with all the fallout of the pandemic. Um, so Charles, so, you know, I was kind of looking at the plague cycle as this sort of giant report card um, on how the world, and as you put it, humanity is doing versus infectious diseases. So if we take that report card analogy, what are our grades looking like? I mean, how are we doing? Are we passing? Are we failing? That was a, a bit of a tough question. My uh, my high school used to give uh, report card grades with two parts for each subject. The, the first one was like, how are you doing in a test? So you're in the top 10% or whatever. And the second half was how hard are you trying? Um, and I, I feel that even, even with COVID, even with the tragedy we've seen over the last year, in the sort of long historical sweep, you still have to give us a pretty good grade as humanity. I'm just 
take one example. If you look at the the death rates of of children, those under five worldwide, every five seconds or so, a child passes away. Now, that is a tragedy, and a lot of those deaths are are preventable. But if we had the death rates of just a few decades ago, it would be one child every second. We've made this immense progress against premature death. COVID has knocked us back a few years, and it's tragic, but it's still sort of a a blip in historical terms uh, compared to the, the victories we've made. That said... COVID is also an example of a disease that we should have been able to beat back far faster with far fewer deaths. So, you know, sort of, a, I think we get we, we get a pretty low grade on, on terms of trying hard against COVID. Mm. The cover of the plague cycle, um, it's a beautiful piece of artwork, um, and it, it borrows from um, a, a picture of, of, of death stalking Manchuria uh, in the late 19, 1800s. Um, this is when a, an outbreak of pneumonic plague happened in Manchuria, you know, terrible uh, airborne version of the bubonic plague that killed so many millions in, in medieval Europe. The disease was fought back in Manchuria within a few months using social distancing and travel restrictions and all the all the techniques that 120 years later we still haven't managed to really you know lock, lock down with hmm. with covid and i think it's a sign you know we we've made all this immense progress we've got these fantastic vaccines so fast and yet really we should have done so much better and and that has led to a tragic loss of life so you know overall in the long historical sweep i think we're doing really well the last year and a half has been has been tragic yeah. I mean, going back to the the long historical sweep, you know, you mentioned um, informal mortality rates that are are so much lower these days and also life expectancy, something that really stuck with me. And I hopefully I copied this down correctly, but it was something like 100 years ago, the average life expectancy was 33. Was that correct? And I was like, oh, I'm going to die in three years, you know, if I had been <laughs> born 100 years ago. Um, and that, that certainly was like, it's psychologically helpful for me, like in, in this period that you're talking about where we could have done so much better. It is helpful to know that we are, we have set ourselves up for success. And if we could follow through on that potential, we could do really well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the victories against premature death, I think, are are humanity's greatest victories. So, as you say, um, uh, 100 years ago or so, uh, a life expectancy of of the mid-low 30s, and now worldwide, the average is above 70. And that's largely because of victories against very young death in particular, so uh, children, uh, infant mortality. And it's really changed the world in in dramatically positive ways. The average parent 100, 150 years ago would have expected one of their children to die in, in, in a, at a young age, you know, before the age of five, before the age of 10. That was just normal. That was the average. And now, you know, thankfully, even in, in the poorest countries, most parents don't go through the death of burying a young, through the pain of, of burying a young child. And I, I don't think you can have any single measure of progress that's better than that. So the long-term story is really positive and shows what we can accomplish, and but also sort of points to how much you know further we've got to go. There are still hundreds of thousands of children dying each year from uh, vaccine-preventable conditions, you know, mm. really fairly simple things to fix. So we've got a long way to go, but we have come a long way, and I think that's one of the reasons for thinking we can get further. 
I mean, what, and what are the things that have brought us to this point? You know, you just said, you know, it's a simple fix and somehow it hasn't been fixed. Um, what are those simple things and, and how can we do that, you know, kind of final push? So we we, we need uh, to vaccinate using the vaccines we already have. And by golly, isn't COVID-19 showing that now? I mean, it's incredible that we might be throwing away COVID-19 vaccines because we aren't using them fast enough. Mm. But this is a this is part of a longer term story of of, of not vaccinating everybody against uh, the diseases for which we already have vaccinations. We need vaccinations for diseases we don't have. Perhaps most importantly, the mass global killer of m- malaria. Now we're seeing progress on that, and I, I think maybe in, in the next few years we will see a, a malaria vaccine, and that will be fantastic news, especially for tropical uh, parts of the planet. So um, they just I'm, started uh, late stage trials for that, right? Or they're about to start late stage trials for that for the they, malaria they vaccine? Did, and, and it's really exciting. That was that was you know one of the bright points of last year. So um, you know I, I, I have hope for new vaccines, but there's also sort of a bunch of old stuff. Right. There's there's stuff we've kind of known about for for 100 years. There is better sanitation, making sure everybody has a decent place to go to the toilet um, really helps. Uh, It's it massively reduces the spread of disease. There's making sure everybody has easy access to clean water. you know, there are sort of basic public health measures that we we still need to make sure that the world as a whole has access to, and if we achieved all of that, we would be going a, a lot further and making you know a, a lot more progress, and there would be a lot lower child mortality and adult mortality worldwide. Yeah, I mean the the simple power of of having clean toilets, washing your hands. These are the sort of things that you forget are not. A given, or uh, it's easy to forget that it's not a given for for a lot of people, and weren't a, you know a given for most of humanity it's from human history. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I mean one of the things I talk about in the book a bit is uh, and and uh, you know uh, uh, apologies to believers out there, but but uh, uh, Christianity in its early stages was a really dirty religion. You had you know <laughs> Rome going around saying uh, young women should never be naked; they should be ashamed to be naked, so they shouldn't be taking baths. You know, for for a lot of history, we were sort of pushing back. Against Against the things that um, actually um, improve human health, and, and you know, one of the great things about the last hundred years or so is that we, you know, we we figured out the, the germ theory of disease. We figured out pretty much how infection spreads, and that is a, just that knowledge is a massively powerful tool in in reducing the the burden of disease. Right, and in the book you talk about. Um Again, it's just easy to forget this stuff. Like there was the miasma theory that infection was spread through smell or like bad odors in the air. Um, and and it is really such a boon to know exactly how COVID is spread. For instance, we knew exactly what to do, even if we did not do it perfectly or well. Yeah, I, I mean, one example I mentioned in the book is is, is John Snow, who was a, a, a London uh, anesthesiologist who who realized uh, during a cholera outbreak that a lot of the cholera cases were connected to a single pump that people were using to collect water. And he he theorized that, that whatever was causing the cholera was was coming uh, in through the water, which is, was right. And um, then he took his theory with a lot of evidence, um, you know, sort of maps of where the deaths were and who was drinking from which pump, uh, took that evidence to parliament. And uh, members of parliament in, in London turned around and scoffed at him and said, Oh come on! We all know cholera is caused by bad smells, not by you know little uh, uh, particles in the water. You know, don't be so ridiculous. And they ignored him. The lucky thing was uh, that uh, in London at the time, uh, 
the sewage system uh, emptied into the Thames. Um, Parliament is right by the Thames. It's, you know, beautiful, Westminster, beautiful building right on the Thames. Um, and the smell from all the sewage really worried parliamentarians that they would going to get sick. And so they actually um, uh, financed a much better sewage system because they believed in the miasma theory, because they were worried about the smell. You know, as it happened, the sewage system uh, took all the sewage uh, downstream out of uh, out of London um, uh, into the estuary, Thames estuary, uh, way downstream. And that meant the water that the Londoners were taking out of the Thames stopped having cholera in it. Um, but it was sort of by accident. It was this belief in a completely incorrect theory that luckily paid off. Um, but, you know, now we're in a much better position to know how to fix problems and how to do it well, because we have this much greater understanding of what's going on. We don't have to be relying on success by accident, although we'll take success in whatever form it comes, I suppose. Um, I mean, so so this is just, you know, one example of this sort of like interesting anecdote from history that, you know, most of us just don't know about. And um, the book is really full of them. It, you know, it really talks about infectious disease as this kind of like major player in world history, causing some to win wars, causing others to lose wars. You, know, you talk about the role of infectious disease in driving the slavery trade and colonization and some of the failures of, of countries to colonize because, because of infectious disease. Um, can you give us a, you know, a little bit of a Sparks version of, of some things that infectious disease had a hand in big world changing events that uh, we might not expect? Sure. So one one story I talk about at some length in the book is around what happened when Europeans uh, rediscovered the new world, if you will, uh, uh, after Columbus. And the, the hideous disease toll that took on uh, Native American populations um, uh, in the new world. And you know the numbers dying just you know two thirds of 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 the population dying over time from these new diseases, along with i should be clear an immense amount of violence as well um but you know infectious disease taking the 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 biggest toll that was one of the reasons that led to a labor shortage in the new world, which led to bringing in um, African slaves to replace uh, you know, local labor, if you will. Bringing in those slaves into tropical areas brought their diseases with them. So you know, malaria spreads throughout the, the new world. And there are some fantastic uh, history of economics papers around looking at places that are, are, are more... Um, suitable for for mosquitoes to spread you see slave populations rising particularly fast in those places um, because people who have been exposed to malaria from birth you know are more likely to be able to deal, deal with the disease slightly better as adults um, and and so had an advantage over uh, uh, other workers including indentured workers from from uh, Europe so the the disease burden created by uh, a the the sort of globalization of 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 diseases that previously had only been in the old world um creates this massive pressure for slavery which helps mm. depopulate africa but not only because a whole bunch of slaves are taken out of uh, africa but also because of what moving all of those people within africa did to africa itself you know spread a whole load of diseases that had been local in africa um uh, far wider as you moved all of these people uh, across the continent and so that made the disease burden in africa much greater than it had been 
And you know, it was one of the reasons, and there are a bunch of, of, of papers showing these, these historical links between the extent of slavery in the past and conditions today. Um, you know, so areas that were more uh, affected by the slave trade have fewer nightlights today than other places. So, you know, you can't see them as clearly from space because they're poorer and they can't afford as much light. You know, these are the kind of effects we see all of these hundreds of years later from the impact of the globalization of infectious disease. Now, there's a big argument um, amongst you know, really heavyweight economists, Jeffrey Sachs and Darren Ashamoglu and so on about you know, why is it that places with more infection uh, are poorer? And Darren Ashamoglu says, well, it's all about um, colonists not wanting to invest long term in places where they were just going to die as soon as they arrived. And hmm. and Jeffrey Sachs saying, no, it's the current malaria burden. You know, having malaria makes it much harder for you to work. I don't think you really have to have an argument between these two things. I think it's both, right? Uh, uh, the the sort of historical costs of of uh, infectious disease in terms of what it did to colonies, what it did to uh, uh, people at the time was huge um, and have, has had long-term ramifications. And there's still an immense cost play, uh, paid by places that see really high malaria burdens. So, you know, I think it's a bit of both. It's a it's a bit of history. It's a it's it's a bit of a present. And when you add those two things together, you see a really large economic effect of of infection. Uh, and and you know, I think it really helps to explain why some parts of the world are rich and some parts of the world are poor. But it goes beyond that. Um, mm. And I won't go I go on too much longer. But but just to take take one other example. Um, we were talking about the immense uh, burden of infection on, on children in particular. Mm. Just to keep population stable in societies in the, in the 18th and 19th century, women had to have five or six kids. Now, not only, you know, this has a lot of kids, takes a lot of time uh, just to keep population stable. In a time before antibiotics, in a time before uh, sterile surgery, Childbirth was a really dangerous activity. And so the sort of the burden on women, both of child care and you know, uh, breastfeeding and, and looking after young children, but also of the, the health costs associated with pregnancy were massive. And I don't think you can explain why we've seen this huge increase in, in women in the workforce in, in in, in gender equality worldwide, although there is still so far to go uh, in that battle, but I don't think you can explain past progress without looking at the fact that you know now the average woman worldwide has less than three kids. Mm. Uh, they're much more likely to be disabled by having those children. You know, I think that's that's a part of the story of why we're seeing this this huge uh, increase in women's participation in paid work and and so on and so forth. Um, you know that knock-on effects in terms of the returns to education for children and why we're seeing such higher education rates worldwide, knock-on effects in, in terms of sexual uh, liberation. Um, if if sex doesn't all have to be about having kids, you know, sex for, mm. for fun uh, is it becomes sort of more allowable. Um, uh, just, you know, a, a huge a huge number of impacts across a, a, a range of different areas, which is why I, I think it's a really important story to tell um, because I think people underestimate both sort of the 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 health effects but also the knock-on effects of infection and that's one of the reasons it's really important that we keep on progressing against infectious disease because you know otherwise we'll see some of this stuff backtrack or slow down yeah i mean some of those ripple effects especially um one that you just mentioned in terms of sexual freedom and lgbtq rights that's something that's something that i really didn't 
expect the the ripples to go out that far. Um, so exactly for the reason that you said, because it relieves this pressure of sex to have children, all of a sudden you have a society that's much more open and much more free. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, you also mentioned too that it, it, safe sex nowadays too is you're able to have it. I mean, there are condoms, there are treatments for, for diseases that you might catch through sex. Um, and, uh, if I think you said something, you know, if we just use the, the tools that we have at our disposal, you know, we're able to do really incredible things, Absolutely. Um, which is not to say, but, you know, to go have sex with whoever you want. I also, and I realized it sounded like I was, uh, having an ode to promiscuity, but anyway, go on. <laughs> But, I mean, syphilis is, uh, I discuss syphilis at some length in the book, and it's a, um, a really depressing disease for a bunch of reasons. One, it's a, a horrible disease. Uh, two, it's a sign of the early bad effects of globalization. Um, quite plausibly, it was brought back by Columbus's ship uh, when Columbus came back from the New World. Um, it then rapidly spread around Europe, first of all, known as the Naples disease, and then as the, the French disease, and then as the German disease as it spreads around Europe, um, and then the European disease when it reaches the Middle East. But uh, Vasco da Gama, uh, just after Columbus, uh, takes the first trip around the Horn of Africa to India, and probably his crew was syphilitic, and that's one of the reasons syphilis hits India so fast. So it's it's sort of depressing from that point of view, but it's also depressing that the 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 response to the disease for so much of history was basically to blame women, right? So uh, uh, who was it who was spreading uh, syphilis? It was prostitutes. And mm. so it led to mass invasions of, 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 of privacy for women. Um, and because of this weird attitude about sex not for procreation, even during the First World War, when it's spreading like wildfire through through troops, and you would have thought any general would just want to control it and stop it however we could. And they all knew that condoms worked to stop disease. They're like, oh, well, no, we can't hand out condoms to troops because, you know, that will encourage them to 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 to, to have, have sex outside of marriage. And it's like, ah. Um, so sort of the the... Uh, our weird attitudes about sex really drive a lot of the uh, of the spread of syphilis through time, mm. and I do think it is, you know, one of the things we should be thankful for is that uh, slightly more rational uh, views about using a condom uh, are, are one of the things that are, are saving lives today. Hey, everybody, I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. (laughs) Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th.
The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. You know, of course, when you started writing the book, I think you said it was five years ago you started writing this book um, in the book itself. Of course, you didn't know that COVID was going to hate didn't know that it was going to come out in the middle of our own very, very own pandemic. Um, but like I said in the beginning, the book does set into context a lot of the stuff that we've just been dealing with in our, in our daily lives um, during this time. And one of those things is this sort of like debate about globalization and travel bans and is it good or is it bad especially in the last couple of weeks with this new um mutation of the coronavirus you know these debates are coming up again like i saw an article this morning uh had sort of a not like a snarky headline but it was like we all know how the mutation is getting around it's not by its own feet you know just making the point that people's you know travel is is making the spread go very fast so where do you lie on on that kind of debate of should we shut ourselves down should we open ourselves up so this is a, a complicated topic um but i actually think that the recent uh, covid mutation demonstrates the problem if you will uh it was discovered in the uk and there was this instant reaction from around europe for, for travel bans you know it's since been discovered a bunch of other places way before it it was discovered um and seen to be a problem it had already spread that's pretty much the story back at you know back in january february march last year that the travel bans were put in place after infection had spread now there are cases where I, th I think travel bans do make sense, or at least serious travel restrictions make sense. If you look at New Zealand, if you look at Taiwan, where they've really basically controlled it in the, in the local population. So the only way it can come in uh, is, is by somebody traveling in with it. By golly, I think we ought to be having you know mm. long quarantine periods and multiple testing before you, you you let people into the country you know sadly for most of the world that we are just i wish we were in that situation but for most of the world we're so far away from that being the risk that i don't really think travel bans have much sense to them um and they do cause problems right so uh, if you if you shut down travel, you shut down the movement of people who can help. You shut down the movement of doctors. You shut down um, uh, the, the movement of scientists. You 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 make the global response harder. Moving vaccines around, you make it all harder. And so there's a trade-off here, and one that I don't think we're addressing very sensibly. You don't want to have masses of people in an airport at the same time during COVID for the same reason you don't want to have masses of people in a church or in a restaurant. Um, that said, one way to make sure you get masses of people in an airport is to say, I'm shutting down travel tomorrow. Mm. And, you know, again, we think one of the things that caused um, a big early spike in New York was the fact that a travel ban was announced and everybody rushed to get home and ended up in huge long queues at JFK, right? So I think travel bans really have, have shown to be not very effective in a world where everybody travels so much and instead sort of 
as our first line of defense against a new infection, we have to rely on the the sort of the power that globalization has given us to respond. Just to take, you know, some examples of that, um, the first tests came out of East Asia, right? They, they, well, sorry, the, the, the first RNA uh, uh, sequencing came out of China for, for COVID. Uh, the first tests were out of you know South Korea and China. And how to do those tests, the knowledge spread worldwide. Um, if you look at the 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 um, Pfizer vaccine, uh, you know, developed by uh, Turkish uh, immigrants living in Germany, mm. uh, working for a U.S. company who was run by a Greek expat. I mean, you know, globalization has helped create the solutions to this problem, um, as as well as definitely playing a role in spreading it. And you know, we but we have to go towards using the power that globalization has given us to respond as our technique, because. As the example of syphilis shows, if you just have three or four sailing ships crossing oceans, you're going to have infection move around, right? We can't go back to the level of globalization that will stop disease spreading because that means going back to you know no travel at all, pretty much. So the only way to go sort of long term is 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 to use the power that globalization has given us to respond and use travel restrictions in particular ways in particular places where they make sense. Frankly, most of the existing travel restrictions I think make no sense at all. Hmm. Um, that's something certainly something for us to chew on. Um, something else that you talk about in the book that we've again seen you know a lot in 2020 and probably moving into 2021 as well, is uh, scapegoating. I mean, you certainly talk a lot about all the different viruses. Um, and you mentioned some a few minutes ago that had names that this is the Italian virus or the Polish one or the Jewish one or what have you. Um, and, I, you know, I have to say when that started happening in the U.S., you know, with, with Trump talking about the China virus and the Chinese virus, what have you, um, I know that there was a rise in hate crimes that, that people were, were saying that um, people who are Asian American or of Asian descent were were bearing the brunt of this. Um, but I also like I when I was reading the book, I felt like well, maybe we've evolved a little bit because it did seem like there was a very large amount of pushback against that in the states as well. Um, and I wasn't sure, like, you know, am I being totally Pollyannish about this? Is are, Have we evolved at all? Or is this just the same replaying of exactly what we've seen throughout human history? No, I, I think I, I think you're, you're right. And, and maybe I was a bit too down in, in, in the book. I mean, compared to the... You know, mass attacks on on human rights uh, that the, the Chinese American community in San Francisco faced during the the, the, the Asian plague, the the, the Asian flu, uh, uh, so called, um, at, at the turn of the nineteenth century. You know, I think we have made progress. Um, things have got better in that regard. I do think travel bans are an example of. You know this problem still existing, right? We uh, hear about an infectious disease travel ban, and is related to a a natural and and reasonably sensible sort of human response, which is when there are lots of infectious diseases out there, strangers are more dangerous. Um, mm. But you know, strangers needs to be carefully defined uh, in, in that case, and you know, ethnic group isn't the way you define stranger in any way that's sort of epidemiologically relevant right so uh uh i think we have made some progress we've still got some way to go in making sure that our responses are you know appropriate and not driven by neuroses uh, uh, uh sort of left over from 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 uh, our ancient history um 
I would say one more thing. I think it's been really hard during this particular outbreak to go after migrants. And that's because if you look at the US or you look at the UK or you look at most of Europe, the proportion of frontline workers who are migrants is really high. Right? Mm. So the proportion of nurses and doctors in the United States who are immigrants is you know, 30, 40%. To turn around and say they're the problem when they're the ones, you know, keeping us alive, I think is 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 really hard. And so again, this is a case of sort of globalization. Sure, it helps spread disease more quickly, a bit more quickly, uh, but it also provides a huge part of the solution to the problem. Mm. Um, so looking at the future a little bit, you know, and going back to this this report card analogy, what what kind of grades are you expecting for the future? I mean, I I was again, struck by the fact that you sort of rated the threat of antimicrobial resistance as equal to the threat of climate change. I mean, and not just from, a, oh, I think this might be a problem, but from the estimated death tolls. Um, and certainly there is a, a huge narrative around climate change, about the threat of it, how much it matters, and that we need to meet that threat. Um, and it's not like people have never heard of, you know, antibiotics not working anymore. And it doesn't take that much to imagine how terrible that would be. But I, but there's certainly not that kind of sort of momentous narrative that's built around that in the same way that climate change has or, or other um, narratives like uh, populations being too high and then the earth not being able to support that. So um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> how, how do you think that this, this future is going to turn out for us with infectious diseases? So, I mean, first of all, I should say, I think, you know, climate is a, a really serious problem, which we know how to fix and can af fix affordably. And, you know, we need to get on it. It's just I feel exactly the same about uh, antibiotic uh, resistance and antimicrobial resistance. Uh, a study uh, uh, by the financed by the UK government uh, a few years ago suggested by 2050 we might be seeing 10 million deaths from antimicrobial resistance worldwide. That's a lot of deaths. Um, and the problem is that we are misusing this immensely powerful tool, you know, this tool that allows us to do modern surgery, this, this tool that makes a whole load of diseases that were deadly into comparatively minor threats. We are already misusing it. We are prescribing it to humans who don't need it because they've got a disease that doesn't respond to antibiotics. Quite often, you know, they've got a virus and we're giving them an antibiotic that's against bacteria. Um, even more so, 90% of the uh, antibiotics prescribed, prescribed worldwide, used worldwide, um, go to animals, um, mostly as just part of an attempt to make them grow faster in massive factory farms. Um, this is not good news, right? A lot of our our, our diseases, I mean, including COVID nineteen, uh, 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 zoonotic, they come they come from animals. Um, you put a massive amount of animals together in a really small space, and then give them all low doses of antibiotics. It's the best way to create uh, a, a, an infectious disease that's going to be resistant to antibiotics. Like, you know, you can't think of a a, a faster way to do it. Um, and so, you know, we really need to be taking a lot more care of antibiotics. And that's just sort of, you know, one example of us not treating this problem with the seriousness as it, it, it deserves. So, you know, the, the, the problem of, of the risk of new infection with the seriousness it deserves. I, I, another one is, frankly, you know, the whole anti-vaxxer movement. Um, I, I think born of a generation that has benefited so much from previous victories against infection, they don't think it's serious. Well, you know, you wait. Um, and you know another example again is 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 the the 
the Biological Weapons Convention, you know, we do actually have an international treaty about biological weapons, which you know are, are growing in theory, it's serious threat. Um, uh, a, you know, scientists with a, a bioreactor can create uh, new infections um, quite straight, you know, quite straightforwardly. You don't need a. It's it's not nearly as hard as creating a nuclear weapon, for example. You don't need a big factory to do it. Um, the Biological Weapon Weapons Convention has four people working on it full time worldwide you know it's not going to be too hard for somebody to slip through the net of the biological mm. weapons convention the four person uh, uh, net <laughs> yeah. uh, so you know we really need to be taking this stuff more seriously um and and i fear you know that's one downside of our huge victories against infection in the past that uh we don't we don't think of it as being such a huge threat as as it could be now if there's a silver line is covered and i you know, I worry about even saying that, but if there's a silver lining to COVID, perhaps it will be that the international community will come together and start treating infection with the seriousness it deserves and, you know, getting stronger, stronger conditions into the Biological Weapons Convention, more oversight, uh, stronger conditions around antibiotic use worldwide, and more upstream research in, in, into vaccines and so on and so forth. Because, um, you know, we, we really... We really don't want to go through this again, and we certainly don't want to go through something worse than this again. And frankly, you know, that's quite likely if we don't do something about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I really just the whole time I was reading the book was thinking about this one interaction I had uh, with somebody, which is related to what you just said about we've sort of um, triumphed over infectious diseases so much until COVID that it, it really does seem like we've forgotten the threat. Um, I was having a little bit of a debate about vaccines. This person was vaccine skeptical, I suppose I would say, vaccine suspicious. And um, he he said to me, well, give me an example of a, a disease that uh, vaccines has obliterated. Because I was like, look, you know, vaccines have saved us from a lot of things. And I said, smallpox. Um, and he said, that's not fair. Like, I don't think of smallpox as a current disease. That's like from the ancient times, you know. And it just that whole interaction was so illustrative of just how complacent we've gone about the solutions that we have at hand because we don't even think about these things anymore that we're, smallpox is not that old of a disease. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly, it's just not something that we, that we deal with in our, in our lives day to day. Um, and, and certainly, you know, just, just to tie us back around, I think whenever I listen to conversations about these sorts of things, there can often be this feeling of like, what do you want me to do about this? You know, uh, you know, um, bioterrorism weapons and it's, there's not a whole lot an average person can do to really fix that problem in their day-to-day life but vaccines are different um vaccines are really something that we can like take on personally make sure that we're following you know established protocols and so on and so forth so i'm wondering if there there are any other things like that so just to give people a little bit of like look this these are the types of things that you can bring into your life to like continue uh this progress in terms of humanity versus infectious diseases as you put it i mean just your your smallpox example you know here is a disease that probably killed more than 100 million people last century you know fairly recently um and was wiped out by a global effort that involved uh, vaccination i do think people definitely making sure their kids get vaccinated that they get vaccinated the the flu vaccine issue you know again a small silver lining recovered was that the flu cases this year shot down because all of the things that work against spreading covid work against spreading the flu um but you know we have a flu vaccine it's not perfect 
but it does uh, uh, save lives. And sadly, few people take it. I mean, I, I own up in the book that a few years ago, you know, I didn't bother getting my flu vaccine. Yeah, you know, pr- problem for other people. And I I regret that. And I promise, you know, ever since then I have, and ever uh, uh, going forward, I, I'll, I'll, I'll continue taking the flu vaccine religiously. Um, but you know, beyond that, <laughs> washing hands, uh, uh, social distancing when necessary, and you know, please may it not be necessary for too much longer. Um, you know, there, there are a bunch of sort of sanitary and and and, and behavioural responses that, that make us all safer. I'd also, frankly, you know, I I try not to eat um, meat laced with antibiotics, not because I think there's a huge direct danger um, to me from, from from eating meat that was was injected with an antibiotic a, a week or two ago. They they break down. You know, it's not it's not that. It's not that I don't want to accidentally ingest antibiotics. It's that I don't want to be part of the food system that is creating a you know potential catastrophe um, um, by by uh, encouraging um, uh, resistance disease, you know, antibiotic resistant diseases. So I do think there are small things that you know we can do in everyday life. But a bit like the climate change problem, I think that the small things we can do in everyday life are important. But frankly, this is a problem that takes government. So, you know, mm. infectious disease is a big government problem, right? It's always been a big government problem. It's, you know, taken quarantines. It's taken massive sewage systems across cities. It's taken, um, you know, big public health uh, uh, mechanisms to get out vaccines to everybody. Um, this is a government problem. And I do think that, you know, we need to hold our, our, our politicians to account. Are you taking this issue seriously enough? Oh, I think that's a great, great way to end. But um, I should, I, you know, I always like to ask, are there any other lingering thoughts that you have? Any Anything that we didn't cover in the discussion that you'd like to uh, get out? I don't, I don't think so. Thank, thanks very much for a, a great set of questions. Yeah, thank you so much, Charles. Um, and we really appreciate you being a part of the network. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Varvalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ambro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.